You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, North Canton Chapel. It's Sunday morning, and it's good to, I would say good to see you, but we're looking at a phone, and you know that at this point, but it's good to be seen by you. It's good to be gathered together virtually all across Stark County in living rooms and in dining rooms. And so um, I want to start off this morning not with a story or, or not with a question, but I want to just uh, bow again in prayer because we're going to be headed into some really deep waters today um, in the book of Colossians. And uh, this is the fourth week of our um, Solas sermon series, and we're going to have some great stuff ahead of us. But I want to pray again. So if you would just bow with me, and um, we'll, uh, we'll kind of get going. So let's pray. Father, we do, um, just again, we come to you and we say thank you. We say thank you for the opportunity to gather. We say thank you for um, the technology that makes this available. And um, God, we know this is not our, our preferred way of getting together. We miss each other. We miss being together, um, hearing each other's voices and, and um, being in the same place. But God, we know even though we're the church scattered, we are still the church united because of the blood of your son. And so as we turn our attention to that this week, um, here in just these few moments, God, we just give you this morning. We give you this time in your word. Um, would you equip us to be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone? Father, we love you. We ask your blessing on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I told you we're going to be in the book of Colossians this morning, and I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn there, and um, we'll get there after just a bit. So this is the fourth week of our sermon series called Solas. And so if you're just joining us or if you've forgotten, here's the idea. Sola is the Latin word that means alone or only. And uh, so where we've been, week one, we looked at scripture alone. And the basic idea there was you only get God's best for you when you get God's word in you. And so we talked about how important it is to, to mine the depths of God's word and to be centered on God's word in our life. Week two, we talked about grace alone. And uh, Pastor Dave led us in that. It was a tremendous study. I enjoyed it. Um, and he told basically that the gospel overpromises and overdelivers. It's the only thing that does that. And because of Jesus, um, it overpromises and overdelivers. Last week, uh, Pastor Ryan and I got to sit down and um, we learned how God's delight over me rests not just in my rests in my position, not my performance. It isn't about what I do that makes God pleased with me. It's my position in Christ. And if you're picking up by now, these kind of become like a watercolor painting where um, like these truths, they all kind of blend together and they're hard to pull apart. Um, and so today, this week four, this is Christ alone. And we're answering the question, what do I do in my salvation? Like if I am saved, do I, do I accomplish anything? What's my role in this whole thing? And you can already tell where that's going. The spoiler alert is that Christ does it alone. And that's super important, and we're definitely going to talk about why. But this idea that these truths all start to blend together, where we're talking about you know, our justification being right with God, our, our sanctification starting to live in light of, of our right standing with God, and then one day, ultimately, our glorification when, when sin is no more a presence in our life, or, or we are completely with God in heaven. Um, these all start to blend together, and they're supposed to be that way because we can't pull them apart. Um, they all kind of feed from each other. And so next week, as we conclude the series, um, you're going to see that even more when we talk about the fifth sola. But today, this is 
Christ alone. And so here's kind of the summary statement I want to give you for today. Jesus is who I cannot be. He did what I could never do. And then he sends me where I would not ordinarily go. That's a big statement, so let me say it again. Jesus is who I can't be. He did what I could never do. And he sends me where I wouldn't ordinarily go. And that statement unfolds like a three-part poem in our text this morning. This is three paragraphs right at the beginning of Colossians. And so I want to take a look at them. So if you would, um, join me in Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to start right in verse 15. And so I'll give you a second to turn there or flip there on your phones. But before we get into it, a little bit about Colossians. Um, who, who are these people and who's writing it and, and what's the occasion? So um, Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison. And so scholars are debated about like when, you know, how often is Paul in prison? This seems to happen a lot to Paul, and it absolutely does. Uh, he was in prison for spreading the gospel, which is kind of a consistent theme in Paul's life. Um, but whether or not it was, you know, this one or that one or where he was in prison, the point is that when Paul writes letters from prison, um, they mean something. There's a little bit more... Um, there's a little bit more of, of a gravity to these things, and I think you'll see them here today. Um, just another way to think about that, if this is helpful for you. Letters from prison are a lot different than letters from vacation. These aren't postcards with like little pithy updates or, or things like that. These, this is a theological treatise about the one thing or the one person that matters most to Paul. And so who's he writing to? He's writing to a church in a city called Colossae, hence the phrase Colossians. And so this is a group of young believers. They're very new in their faith, um, but they're very faithful to Jesus. And so um, this is interesting. This one was a church that Paul had neither started um, nor had he met these people in person. And so he'd kind of heard about them. These would be like, a, like spiritual grandchildren for him. They were started, this church was started through a friend of his, and so he wanted to write this letter to encourage them. And so the, the point that I wanted to give you in that before we get into it, here's what I want you to see. Whether you're in the position of the Colossians and you are brand new to Jesus, or whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades, you are never too old to start meditating and savoring on the supremacy of Jesus, which is what this book is all about. And um, if we had weeks upon weeks, we could unfold this whole book. We're just going to drop into just three paragraphs. So with that, here's the first thing that I want us to see is that Jesus is who I could never be. And so this is this first move. Jesus is who I could never be. Let's look together in verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this is the first chunk. And then he continues again in verse 18. He says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the first, or he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So there's a ton in there. I want to break it up into a little bit um, so you can see what's really going on here. So it's, it's very likely that these verses um, are actually a poem. Um, they're probably pulled from a hymn 
that the early church used uh, when they gathered together in houses. And so just to give you a little bit of context, what we're doing now through the use of technology is actually very similar to what our spiritual great-great-grandparents did in the first century. They gathered in houses and they worshiped together. Now, we're all spread apart and there's probably no more than maybe six or seven or eight of you in your home at the most. Um, but the truth is that, that this is very similar to what we did in um, you know, 2,000 years ago. And these words, they're so rich in depth, and there's so much going on here. It's probably a hymn that the early church used to sing together. So two comments on that really quick. This isn't the only hymn in the New Testament. There's one in Philippians chapter 2. There's also one in 1 Timothy 3.16. We see that again. But this is why we sing stuff. And I just want to camp out on this idea before we get into the text. I know some of us, when we gather together in worship, um, on Sunday mornings, just across the hall here at 715 Whittier, I know some of us, when we are called to sing, we kind of stand there and go, okay, I'll stand and I'll, I'll kind of like mumble through something. Here's my push to you. We sing words in worship because those words have a way of getting into our hearts in ways that just reading doesn't. And so we sing because, yes, it's an emotional response to the truth we've been taught, but beyond that, they stick in our memory. And so this is an example of what's going on here. And so this hymn focuses really on two attributes. The first one is Jesus as creator. I want you to see this. This is in verses 15, 16, and 17. And it says, Jesus is creator. It says, he's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. Think about that for a second. It says, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. You get the sense that Paul's just like riffing on this great idea that Jesus is a creator. We think about Jesus as this, this rabbi with a beard and, and sandals and, and maybe a tunic walking around in, in first century Israel. Yes, that's true. But let's not forget, he was present at creation. This world exists because of him. Um, he, there was never a time where he didn't exist. He is eternally coexistent. Um, he wasn't born or created at this time in you know, 0 or 2 BC or wherever you want to put the date. That's when he stepped into the world that he created. But he wasn't born at that point. He's eternally coexistent. So Jesus is a creator. But then he also says that Jesus is a redeemer. In verse 18, he says this. He says, he's the head of the body, the church. So that's all of us. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, which is a great thing. He is resurrected, and in so resurrecting from the dead actually prefigures our own resurrection as sinners. It's incredible. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent, or that is to say, first. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Yes, Jesus was God, and he is God. He's always been God. And he talks about this where he says, through him to reconcile to himself all things. And we're going to get to that word reconcile more in just a bit. But this idea that Jesus is a creator and a redeemer. Now, here's the question that we want to ask. Why should we start here? We're talking about Christ alone, and the question is, what makes me right with God? What do I contribute to my salvation? Why start with this high view of Jesus? Here's the answer that I want to give you in your living rooms or your dining rooms this morning. And this is going to sound trite at first, but just follow me. I don't want Jesus to be cute to you. I don't want Jesus to be quaint to you. We do not worship a quaint, cute, namby-pamby Jesus who's like my buddy. 
That is not true. He is not cuddly. Even in the Gospels, when, when, when he tells the disciples, he says, I am calling you my friends. Remember, he's the one that says, I'm calling you friends. They never call him friend. They call him Lord and master and teacher. It's him that does that. So he's the co-creating, eternally existent second person of the Trinity, and he is worthy of all of our worship. And here's why I think that's important for us to understand right, right early on here. I think that small views of Jesus contribute more to my sin than I actually realize. When I have a small view of Jesus, I really end up with a pretty high view of Brandon Marshall. When I have a small view of Jesus, I, I, I tend to relativize truth. When I, when I have a small view of Jesus, it leads to this like hazy purpose as a worshiper. And so before we pivot into where Paul wants to take us next, Jesus is who I could never be. And so what should we take from this hymn to Jesus as creator and redeemer? A few things, um, just for our meditation and thought as we, as we keep rolling here. First off, we should see Jesus' posture as God as equally worthy as his action as a savior. And so here's what I mean by that. Um, these two things, that Jesus is a creating God of the universe. This is just as valuable to me and should be just as precious to me as the fact that he saved me. Put another way, Jesus is more than his function. He is more than just your savior. He is the eternally coexistent God. And so let me ask you a question. Do you love him as God or do you love, her, love him as the giver of gifts for you? Do you love him just because of what he, does, what he has done or did or will do for you? Or do you love him just because he is? And here's the statement I just want to leave you with. He is worthy of worship even if he never lifted a finger to save you from your sin. Because he is God. Here's something else to consider before we move on. We should boast in our all-sufficient Savior in a world that is full of insufficient Saviors. There's lots of potential Saviors out there that promise you relief from pain, right? And in the world that we're living in right now, like we're trying to find new ways to find relief and to find peace and to find comfort. But none of those things that promise you peace and comfort, these insufficient Saviors, none of those things created the world. Jesus did. And so if he created the world, he can sustain the world, and he can preserve you in the world. He is competent to save you because he is competent to create you. His hands scooped out oceans and then were nailed to a cross. That is an incredible truth to just marinate around in for a while. And here's the last thing before we move into this, this second part. We should see our sin, and this is coming up here more in just a bit. We should see our sin as massive enough to warrant God's incarnation into this world. We shouldn't trivialize our sin. My sin is not an oops. It's not a mistake. It's not like a screw-up or something I did to, to make God angry, and that's all. It's much more than that. I offended the holy God of the universe, and I am guilty, and you are guilty, and every one of us are guilty, and we shouldn't look at our sin as small. Small sins lead to small saviors, but for God to step into this world, that must mean two things. It must mean I have offended him greatly, but he loves me all the more. And so that's my word for you. I have to sit on that for a minute because Paul is going to take us into something really beautiful next. But I want you to think about those things that, that small sins lead to small saviors. And Jesus is not a small savior. So 
If it's true that Jesus is who I can't be, did what I couldn't do, and sends me where I wouldn't go, it sort of begs the question, well, what has he done? And so for that, Paul moves into what Jesus actually accomplished for us. And here's where the doctrine of Christ alone really starts to shine through. Let's take a look in verse 21. This is probably another paragraph in your Bible or or looking on your phone. Verse 21. And you, so he's talking to Christians here. He says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So those three descriptors sounds a lot like what we looked at in week two when Pastor Dave read Ephesians chapter two, one through 10. These characterized us. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, and that's the cross, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Three very different words. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. So this whole second paragraph, this idea of what Jesus has done, verses 21 through 23, hangs on one phrase. Verse 22, he has now reconciled. He has now reconciled. I love that idea of, of reconciliation. And so if I'm going to give you a word picture for that in just a little bit. But for right now, what I want you to imagine in your head, if you could close your eyes and imagining two guitars or two instruments that are playing next to each other, and they're slightly out of tune, they need reconciliation, right? If you've got two instruments that are next to each other and, and they need to be brought into perfect unity together. Otherwise, this, there's this dissonance that's there. That's what Paul's getting at here. He's like, there's this eternal dissonance in the universe between God and his creation, and we need something to bring these things back into harmony, back into unity. That's this idea of reconciliation. And so a couple of questions just from the text that we want to, again, just like let the text unfold here in front of us. First off, who has done this? Who has brought reconciliation? And that's really this idea of Christ alone. Here's what he says. He has now reconciled us. So who has done it? Jesus has. Jonathan Edwards, um, who is a pastor, a writer, a theologian, would say it this way. He said, the only thing that I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. The only thing that I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. And so that's why we sang earlier this morning, we said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or else I die. Like, I can't do anything. Those are the stakes, that great last line, wash me, Savior, else I die. Like, those are the stakes here. This isn't like, I need to be a better person, so fix me. This is, no, death will reign in me and over me unless Jesus does something for me to bring these things back into alignment. Um, this should humble us. The fact that Jesus did this. He has reconciled. I put it to you this way. If you're, if you're watching this this morning and you're engaging online and you're a Christian, you have chosen to follow Jesus, this should humble you. This should not make you feel like, man, I'm awesome. This should make you go, wow. Um, the way that I've put it before is I'm just a beggar showing another beggar where to get bread. That's all we are. That's what evangelism is at some point. It's just me going, look, I'm just as, as, as poor and, as, and, and as, 
as needy and as destitute as anybody else. And I'm just going to show you where to go get bread. That's all evangelism is for believers. But there's a second question. How has he done it? And that's, again, it's in here in the text. It says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. This is this big theological word called substitutionary atonement. It's this idea that if, um, if, if, let's, if, if, uh, if you had committed a wrong, let's say if you're a kid watching this morning here with your parents and you're sitting in your living room, um, let's say you were, offered a de- you, were, you were given a detention slip at school. I remember that for myself. Um, it was North Kenton Middle School in 1994, um, the old building on Charlotte Street, and I was issued a lunch detention. And so I remember having to walk down the hall at lunch when all my friends were down in the cafeteria, and I had to walk to the assistant principal's office. Now, if you could imagine what that would be like in your school, and then right as you're about to turn the corner into the assistant principal's office, your mom or your dad showed up. And they said, you know what? I want you to go to lunch with your friends. I'm going to go and serve the detention for you. That's this idea that Jesus showed up and did what I could not do. Um, and not so that I could gradually become a better person, but so that I could instantly be called free of all of the charges that were brought against me by a righteous God. But here's where this gets best. He says, why has he done this? And there's this big giant phrase in here. Let's read it again, starting in verse 22. He says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Now, what does that even mean? So if you think we've been in deep water up till now, this is where this gets really deep and really, really good. The reason that Jesus saves you isn't just because it makes you happy although that's part of it. It isn't just because it helps make sense of your life now, although that's part of it. It isn't just so that you can enjoy heaven, although that's part of it. The reason that Jesus saves you is in order that you would be presented holy and blameless and above above reproach before him. Jesus reconciles us to the Father because that gives the Father glory. So here's what this means. The reason for the cross, the reason for Christ alone, it's not just my get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not just because it, it spares me from suffering, although that's part of it. But the larger picture is it is more glorious for God to be known among his creation as a rescuer of those who would cling to Christ alone. Putting the full weight of my salvation on Jesus makes his love that much bigger, that much wider, and so much more confounding to my human logic. Like the biggest reason for me to cling to Christ alone isn't because it's a nice sounding sermon title, but because it makes the most of God's graciousness by pointing all and putting all of my weight on Christ. It makes no sense that God would love me. It makes no sense that he would send this costly sacrifice of himself into this world to die. He didn't have to do any of that. That makes no sense, but that's what grace is. Grace should be profoundly frustrating at first because it goes, I don't understand this. And there's, there's something inside our human heart, just to reflect on that, that it, it, it goes against how we are created because I want to go, no, I, I, I should contribute, right? I should. I shouldn't get something for free. We're told that all the time. If it sounds too good to be true, what? It probably is. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And so this is not free in the sense that it cost Jesus his life, but it is now free for you. It is a gift. And so if I were to step in and say, well, let me, let me contribute, let me help out, that would rob God of glory. 
because he wouldn't be seen as gracious to me if I could step in and somehow make up for something. God the Father offers you complete salvation at no cost, but at great cost to himself. That ought to humble us. I don't get it, but I absolutely love it. And so there's this other element here that we need to, need to keep, keep unfolding because, yes, Jesus is who I couldn't be. He did what I couldn't do. But we said something um, a couple of weeks ago that I want to I return to because it shows up again here in verse 23. Um, we said that grace and salvation, this is not the, the finish line, but this is the starting line of a life that actually means something. And so you get shades of that here in verse 23. Paul says this, he says, if you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting. And I hear that and I go, man, that is, that is really beautiful. Stable, steadfast, and not shifting. But let me lower the wall here and speak to our, our current climate and our current world for a minute. I realize that is like the hardest thing that I could ask you to do or to be like today, like go be stable, be, be not, be steadfast, be not shifting. Like the truth of the matter is like everything in this world has become unstable. Everything is not steadfast. Nothing is not shifting. Everything is moving around. And like in these recent days, like the rhythms of our church have changed. The rhythm of your family has changed. The rhythm of life has changed. And, you know, maybe you're seeing things in yourself that you go, I do not have the patience that I thought I had. Like, I'm not the person that I thought I was. And you're seeing things that are very, very difficult to look at. And, And then in the middle of all of that, you carve out an hour on Sunday morning to look at your TV and hear a word from God. And we're supposed to go, okay, this is how we get through this week. And so I'm just going to confess to you and be vulnerable. I don't know what else to say other than to say that Jesus is profoundly worth it and that Jesus is the only centering person who can bring balance to my own life and can help me understand how to navigate this. And I think so many of you are in the same place. Jesus is who I can't be, and he did what I could never do. And so here's this last part that we want to unfold. He sends me where I would never go. Jesus is who I could never be. He did what I could never do. And he sends me where I would never go. Um, This is the implication for what it means to cling to Christ alone. Um, So before we get into this text, this is going to be 24, kind of through the end of the chapter here, just a couple of verses. But um, quick story to introduce this. Last week, um, right after the sermon, I had somebody text me, which is a great way to interact with the sermon. I love that, by the way, because we can dialogue and go back and forth. Um, Somebody texted me, and they said this. They said, okay, I think I get this justification by faith alone thing, and I think I get how this all fits together, but I'm confused by something. Shouldn't good works follow? And um, I said, this is a great question. I said, absolutely good works should follow, but they should follow as an overflow of the thankfulness that I already have in my heart for the provision of Christ. They should not follow as a way to earn the favor or the procure the favor of my Father. They should follow differently. Um, I think a lot of us, and this, this will help build a frame for this last couple of verses, a lot of us look at the Christian life now, if once we are saved and we've confessed Christ and we say, yes, we look at the Christian life much in the way that like, a, a child would look to his father um, when it comes to chores. Like, well, I got to go clean my room because I need God to be happy with me. Or, um, you know, I got to go take out the trash or I got to go do these things. And that, that is 
inverting everything that, that Christ wants. The good works that follow from our life are because we love him. It's because we've been shown so great a love that it's, it's, it's not a way to earn anything, but this is a very natural response to the one who would give his life for me. And so I would actually push that even a little bit further. If you're hearing this this morning and you've been a part of this conversation and you're going, okay, I, I get that Jesus loves me, but can I keep one part of my life for myself? Could I, um, maybe I can, could I keep this, this hobby or can I keep this secret or could I keep this thing kind of off to the side? I wonder if you even know Jesus because when you fully sit in the fact that you are loved by a holy, eternal, creating God who wants to reconcile a broken relationship and bring these things back into harmony, what else would you hold on to? Why would you hold anything back from him? And I think for so many Christians, before we get to this text, this is our holdup. We're stuck here. We're all about Jesus alone for our salvation. We get that. We're like, yep, I like that. But because we view Jesus in a small way and not the Lord of my life, we miss what he so deeply wants for us. And so a couple of things before we listen to what Paul has to say, because what he says changes everything. Um, Here's where I think we miss it. I think often we view salvation as transactional rather than relational. We, we view the cross as, well, this is the transaction that made me right with God. And so, good, like, we're done. I had a debt, it got paid, game over. Like, everything's happy now. And so I want to give you the gospel in this for a minute. It is a transaction, but it is a transaction that enables and restores a relationship. It is the starting point of a relationship for you. A second thing that I think we miss is, we tend to view ourselves still as semi-sovereign. Sovereign meaning free. Like we're, we're still pretty sovereign over our own life rather than totally incapable. Um, and so we, we kind of keep things back from ourselves and, or back from God for ourselves. And so I want to ask, why would you even want to do that? Um, we've all tried that in different parts in our life. I know I have. I've tried to kind of kind of lead little parts of, of life by myself, and it never works out. And you're the exact same way. And so you think after lesson and lesson and lesson of that, every time I try to do it my way and I fail, you think that would be all the evidence I need that Brandon Marshall is a terrible lord of his life, and I need a better one. We are completely incapable. But then there's this third. Um, we, we, we tend to view God as only partially worthy rather than entirely wonderful. And this truth of Christ alone that Paul then talks about here in a minute, this is like Isaac Watts wrote this song. He says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Um, And so when you're well acquainted with all of that and you're ready to give it all back to Jesus because it's his anyway, then you're ready for what Paul has to say next in verse 24. Here's what he says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So that's, he's talking about prison. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's an interesting statement we're going to come back to. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I've become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, and make the word of God fully, or to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And saints there, he's talking about believers. He says, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And I was like, what are we talking about, Paul? What do you, what do you mean? Here's what he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
And that is the big explosion, the symbol crash at the end of this giant crescendo, the idea that Christ could be given for you so that you can now live your life in light of that, being thankful for everything he has done. Now, I want to go back to this phrase because Paul's got a little bit more here where he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, that almost sounds like not Christ alone, doesn't it? It almost sounds there's something lacking in what Jesus did on the cross, that Jesus didn't accomplish something that I now have to go and contribute to. So what does he mean by that? He says, I'm filling up what is lacking. So Paul's doing something. What's he doing? He's suffering. He says, I'm suffering for this great cause. And in that suffering, he's filling up what is lacking. Verse 27, to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. And there it is. So let's put this whole thing together. When believers, that's us, if you have trusted in Christ alone, make it their mission to spread that gospel to those who don't know Jesus yet, whether that means afflictions or not, when we are so consumed by that mission, we actually fulfill the heart of God and his full intention in giving Jesus to this world anyway. Basically, taking Jesus among those who don't know him yet. And so the only thing that's missing or lacking in Christ's afflictions is there are people who don't know about it yet. And I think that is the most theologically loaded way of looking at mission I have ever heard of. And then Paul talks about that, and he closes it out like this. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone how, with all wisdom. Why? That we might present everyone mature in Christ. Doesn't that sound familiar? It's exactly what he said earlier that Jesus was so eager to do. And now he gets super personal. Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. So Paul talks about what it means to go to work and to live busy for Christ. Here's what I love about this, this last little bit, and then we'll wrap up for today. There's this old um, kind of argument in a lot of churches, and maybe you've been a part of this argument or you've heard it before. It's, okay, should the gospel be proclaimed or should it be demonstrated? Should I stand on street corners and, or should I hand out tracts? Should I, should I be proclaiming the gospel in all these ways or should I just seek to demonstrate it in organically through relationships? And here's Paul going, both. You have to do both. Proclamation without demonstration leads to like some cold elitism, right? You, you, you are a very cold Christian if all you do is just proclaim the gospel but never demonstrate it in your relationships. But then demonstration without proclamation just leads to haze and misdirection. If people don't know the truth of the gospel but they see you changed, then you're missing that opportunity. And I love that last phrase where he says, we do this with all wisdom, this is Paul saying, I'm taking my time and my talents and my treasures and I'm putting it all out there. Why? Because I want what Jesus wants. I want to present everyone blameless. So, parting thought before we wrap up today. Here's how all of this gets insanely relevant uh, for the world reeling from a medical crisis that we're in. Even though it's a technological wonder that we can take our worship gatherings online, and I rejoice in the technology that lets us gather online, communities, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. And I rejoice in all the stuff that's happening. Um, it's incredible that we can maintain some sense of connection as a church. Let's not lose sight of the fact that none of those are the reason why we exist. We don't exist to sustain 
We don't exist just to maintain or to preserve. We exist to expand. We exist for those who aren't here yet. Because just like Paul, we work hard because there are people in North Canton and Stark County who don't know that a holy God loves them even though they've broken his law and he has sent Jesus to reconcile them that they can have the hope of glory. Months from now, let's just think about this and this will hopefully gladden our hearts. Months from now, when this whole thing is in the rearview mirror and we are done with it, and we're back here gathered in our building and life goes back to normal, let's not be the church who is content to congratulate ourselves for innovating our programming at the expense of extending our mission. Because we have a bigger, better, ultimately way more fulfilling story to tell, and I do not want us to miss our opportunity to tell it. Because here's like the heart-rending question that rattles around in my head. Can we really be who we say we are? One of the biggest lies we could believe right now, and it's so dangerous, is that success as a church means preservation, maintaining, taking no new ground. And so here's what I want you to hear. Last parting thought, and then we're going to pray. New seasons open the door to new ground. So let's put that into a question. What new ground does God want to take in your life in this new season that we find ourselves? It's probably nothing earth-shattering. It's probably nothing great and huge. and, and it, It may be, and that's awesome. But new ground could look like maybe praying with your spouse for the first time. Honestly praying, not just before a meal. It could mean building some rhythms into your family life that means you're actually going to open the word of God with your kids. And even though we feel so ill-equipped to do that, we're going to just jump in. It could mean meeting your neighbors. It could mean for you even personally reading the Bible for the first time. Again, I recommend starting in the Gospel of Mark or starting in the book of Ephesians. Or if you want to keep reading in Colossians, have at it. New seasons open the door for new ground. And so that's where I want to like kind of drive this challenge today. So Jesus is who I could never be. He did what I could never do. And he sends me where I could never go. So thank you again for being here with us this morning. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to wrap up our time in just a few moments. Father, again, we are just so grateful that in your wisdom, you didn't leave us on our own. Even though we've broken your law and broken your heart, you didn't say, let them figure it out. You stepped into this world that you created. You redeemed us, and you reconciled our relationship. You made it right And so, God, our hearts, we want to contribute, but we know that we can't. So, Father, all that we can say is, here's our lives. Take us and use us. We are just so thankful to be called your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.